Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. It's the wonderful Indy Bay singing a song about uh, two people who have a secret life. Everybody has all kinds of secrets, right? And there's some secrets that are almost more private thoughts. I'll give you an example. So there's a great Southwest Airlines commercial, which you may recall, in which uh, some general gets rushed into a situation room where there's, you know, 50 people working on this terrible security breach. And they say, General, we need to lock it down. We need your password to lock the system down. And he says, my password? The one that I use? And they said, yes, General. And they get this 50-foot-wide screen that they're all looking at. And and he finally goes, I, H-A-T-E. M-Y-J-O-B-1. <laughs> so his password is I ate my job, which obviously is something he was not sharing. Uh, and in fact, one of our guests has a list of 38 categories of secrets, and job dissatisfaction is one of them. I don't know. That feels more like just a private thought, you know, which is maybe not the same thing as a secret. But let me just say one other thing before we start. I have always believed that there's a secret, a family secret that I don't know. Uh, and I have some pretty good reasons for thinking that. Uh, and I was brought up as an only child. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that I had a half-sibling somewhere. Um, something like that. My, my parents I, – I could tell you I would waste too much time. But my parents were obviously keeping some kind of secret and they were just almost absurdly unforthcoming about basic kinds of questions. So um, – you know, and I think that that kind of seeps into things. It's not a secret I'm keeping. It's a secret kept from me. But I think it's affected my life in certain ways. Anyway, we're going to talk a lot about secrets today. We're going to begin with somebody we talked to, I think, the last time we talked in a systematic way about secrets, Dr. Michael Slepian, a researcher who studies psychology of secrecy as well as an associate professor at Columbia Business School. He wrote the book, The Secret Life of Secrets. Uh, Michael Slepian, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. Again. Uh, it's been yeah, it's been ten ten long years, and and That's right. um, so I mean a number of things have happened since you were on the last time, and you were just starting your research, 
uh, into secrecy. Uh, and one of the first things you looked at is, I mean, we often talk kind of metaphorically about the burden of a secret. But there's a way in which the burden of a secret really is almost a physical burden, right? It's, we experience it in, in a somewhat similar way. Yeah, so this is what we talked about 10 years ago when I just started this program of research, um, and I didn't yet know uh, where it would take me. Uh, in those initial studies, what we were looking at is this very idea. People talk about secrets in this curious way. A secret can weigh you down, a secret can be heavy or burdensome. And my original studies explored that metaphor, essentially, and and found that people don't just talk about secrets this way. They, they think about secrets this way. They feel their secrets this way. When they're thinking about a significant secret of theirs, they view the world around them as more challenging to interact with in the same way you would if you were physically encumbered uh, for any reason. So oddly enough, um, you had a similar experience to the one I just kind of speculative, speculatively described about myself. You're already a secrets researcher. And one day, I think it was while you were interviewing for the job you now have at Columbia. That's right. Uh, yeah. You got a call from your father and it was one of those, are you sitting down calls? You take it from there. Yeah, that's right. So we're um, still presenting this research. It's still new research at the time. Um, people judge hills as steeper when they're thinking about their secrets and judge distances farther. So I'm presenting this brand new work as part of a job interview. And at the end of that night, after a very long and, and exhausting, but kind of exciting day talking about my new research on secrets, my dad calls me and he says, I have a secret to tell you. He, he does say, are you, are you sitting down? Uh, and then he proceeds to tell me that he's not biologically able to have children. He was telling me that he wasn't my biological father. Um, and just this huge secret that was kept from me and my younger brother, who I then learned was my half-brother. Uh, the family plans to never tell us this secret. That was the original plan. Right. So, um, but your father was constantly saying, you know, that hill looks very steep there. I don't know if I want to go. <laughs> um, but no, no I, I, so this isn't, let's break this one down. All right. So this is a secret. It, the secret isn't really about some kind of act of turpitude. Um, this is more the, the big problem with the secret here is the secret, the fact that you weren't told, right? If everybody had been told that I don't th this, it seems to me like I, I hate to use the word sin, but the the wrong committed if there is one is just keeping the secret. Yeah, and, and that's how I saw it at the time. You know, I thought like, wow, this is incredibly surprising. Um, and then sort of after a few more moments of pause and reflection thought, but this is okay. Um, this doesn't change anything. This is very surprising, uh, but it's okay. And and I thought it, you know, it makes my relationships with my dad and, you know, made my relationships with his parents for me more special, not less. Um, and lo knowing that they weren't based in this sort of genetic obligation type thing. And yeah, it, it was, it was like, <laughs> why are you telling me about this now? And, <laughs> and why did you never plan to tell us? And why did I go into secrecy research, come to think of it? But um, but yeah, and I don't know. And obviously, if you're an ornithologist, you see birds in a lot of places. And I, did you see a change in your father or your parents, uh, your family in general, now that they didn't have to keep the secret anymore? We, we know the impact on you. Did you ever figure out what it did to them to, quote, unburden themselves of this? I, I think it was exactly that. Um, when when this information for us came out, you know, I had a phone call with my dad and then I had a phone call with my mom and 
then my brother came out to visit me so we could sort of spend some time together and just you know take a try to take a broader look at, at this very new news at the time and then there was a point at which you know we stopped talking about him um, and i think it, it was no longer a burden for my parents and you know it it wasn't a conversation item um mm-hmm. very quickly um and that kind of surprised me looking back on it um 10 years later because <laughs> I, I i bring up this story in my book and when i did that i kind of brought this back to the forefront of, of all our minds and it became a conversation topic again so uh, you know somewhere right now as you and i are talking Somewhere in America and lots of places in the world, people are spitting into test tubes and mailing them to Ancestry.com or 23andMe. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, if you don't know your family, if you think your family doesn't have a secret, you probably just don't know it. You know, It could be that your cousin is actually your aunt and, or it could be that, you know, one of your siblings, you know, was your mother's child by another man. Or it could be – I mean, there are these people who have entirely – full sets of nuclear families in different locations and they show up at the funeral. Uh, but it seems to me that genetic research and just genetic, genetic research as a consumer item that you can buy into for an affordable sum it's, is going to create and probably has created just avalanches of these kinds of reckonings. I, I don't know. What have you seen uh, about that, Michael? Yeah, so you're totally right. I think we're in this time right now where we can learn about these secrets and we do and some people go out seeking them when they you know take a take one of these genetic testing kits hoping to see who they match you know um with and by how much and you know i think probably children who are born today it's going to be a different story because people know that this can be accessed later down the line but you know for people like me born in the in the 80s i think i think all those a lot of people at my age are now learning these very surprising secrets that um, were supposed to be <laughs> secret. Um, I, I think it's very easy to find stories online of people learning about dozens of, of half siblings when they go looking. Right. Um, so, I, isn't every secret sort of a cost benefit analysis, an implicit cost benefit analysis? You're keeping a secret because you think the value of keeping the secret exceeds the cost that you would pay uh, if you if you gave up on the secret, if you gave it out to the people who might want to know it. Uh, you think that the uh, the cost of that doing that would be very high. There might be a benefit to be to doing it and just unburdening yourself. And I think one way you could look at this, and this is one that's changed over the decades, is the number of men who didn't feel they could be gay and out, uh, you know, across the decades. And, and the cost, the risk of coming out as a gay man in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, even 1970s is higher, I think, generally speaking anyway, than, than it is today. And, and so, I mean, for any secret like that, isn't that what the person is often thinking about is like, it would be good to get this out in the open. I would get it off my chest. But the cost of saying this might be very high for me. And we can talk separately about the cost of the person who hears the secret. But could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you're right. I think at the end of the day, most secrets, we believe we're protecting something by keeping that secret. Maybe it's ourselves and our reputation. Maybe it's another person's feelings or, or a relationship with someone or someone else's relationship with, with a third party. And, you know, there's, of course, these costs that we're learning about now today. And I've been studying for the past 10 years. 
there's so many different ways in which a, a secret can hurt you. And, and that's what it does on average. Um, and we can talk about why, but yeah, I think people know there's that, that cost and, and often will still keep the secret hoping to protect the thing that they're hoping to protect, or, or maybe some of it's inertia as well, or, or just knowing that it will be better when the secret's out, but do you have the courage to reveal it? Um, of course, it matters a great deal about what the secret is about. Right. And you've also looked at the whole question of, do we all want to know secrets that are being kept from us? Uh, for example, if your partner had a one-night stand on a business trip seven years ago, um, do you necessarily want to know that? Um, and a surprisingly high percentage of people think that what they don't know will hurt, will hurt them, or at least they want to know. They don't want to be kept in the dark, right? Yeah, so we we ran this study where we asked a couple hundred people uh, to imagine the scenario you, you presented. Um, we even made some additional caveats. This never happened before. It'll never happen again. Would you want to know? And it really thought a lot of people would think to themselves, well, no, you know, life would be easier not to know that if it truly was a one-time thing and, and not a symptom of some larger problem. Uh, but if I remember the number correctly, it was 77% of people said they, they would want to know. You know, some people, when they hear that number, they think, okay, but probably some of those people are wrong and, and maybe you should ask them, do you really want to know? <laughs> but but what what's important is is not necessarily that percentage, but just knowing that some portion of people would want to know and, and some portion of people would not want to know. And the ideal scenario is you're meeting your partner's expectations and so it can be a really complicated question. This particular secret uh, is so fraught, and that's why I studied it specifically. But I, you know, I find that if you're wrestling with this kind of question, you sh don't need to f do it alone. Um, you should talk to someone about it, and that'll help these tough questions. So, um, well, actually, before we get to the, the the average number of secrets a person has, we should say say. I don't know if birds do it and bees do it, but chimpanzees do it, right? Uh, there is some kind of recognizable concealment behavior in chimpanzees. Yeah, so they they have the ability certainly to to conceal objects and sort of basic um, pieces of knowledge. Uh, you know, they 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 know if another chimp was witness to something um, so they can understand that, you know, where chimps eyes are pointed is, is what they're seeing. And they know if something's happened that they've seen, they've seen and, and not the other chimp. And so that allows them to be sneaky in, in, in domains that chimps are sneaky in, whether it's, you know, food or, or some secret mating uh, uh, behind the alpha's back type thing. So you found, um, based on uh, the studies that you've done, that the average person is keeping an average of 13 secrets at a time. Um, we should, first of all, say this has something to do with the actual act of reporting to one's self about this. In other words, if you were to just come up to me in a kind of startling moment and say, how many secrets are you keeping, Colin? I'd say, I don't know, two. <laughs> but if you give me a, you know, if you sit me down with a form or you start interviewing me in a much more detailed way, I'm probably going to realize I've got more than that. That's exactly right. Um, and so when I first started presenting this research to people, the one on the research on the hill slant stuff, uh, judgments of, of the world around us, people would sometimes wonder, like, are you studying secrecy? You know, is this actually representative of what it's like to have a secret, just simply thinking about your secret? And that's when we realized, actually, almost there's almost any basic question we had at that time, there was no answer. And because prior studies sort of created secrets in the lab rather than looked at real secrets. And so 
the very first question I started asking was, well, what does secrecy look like in the world? What secrets do people keep? How many secrets do people keep? And we asked a couple thousand people and then looked at those couple thousand responses about secrets they were keeping and found that these 38 categories of secrets really well captured the data um, in this list turns out to be really comprehensive. Um, you can fit the list on one sheet of paper and that really kind of describes almost the entire universe of secrecy. Um, these are the kinds of secrets people commonly keep and we see it in the US and we see it across the world. And the, it's so comprehensive that this list, if you looked at 38, the 38 items on the list, the average person goes, oh wow, gosh, I, I have about 13 secrets on average. Um, when you look at the list, you, you start seeing ones you might not have thought about in a while. And another thing that you found is that obviously there are different kind of gradations of secrets, including secrets that you're keeping that you just, they're so essentially unimportant. I mean, you might have even forgotten that you have that secret. But the ones that you think about are the ones that are causing you the most pain. Is that sort of a right way to say it? Yeah, it, it turns out that it's not how frequently you conceal a secret that's related to how harmful that secret is to your well-being. It's it's the secrets you frequently think most about and repetitively think about. Those are the ones that are more harmful. Um, and you know, let's talk a little bit about the whole idea of confessing a secret. Okay, okay, you can confess a secret to the people you have been keeping it from, and that comes with certain risks both to you and, as we've said, also to them. Um, there are various kind of outsourcing ways to do this. It used to be pretty much the province of the church and the seal of confession, uh, now, of course, there's therapy. Um, there are other opportunities to confess. Is is helping? Is it helpful to confess a secret to a less interested party? In other words, if you're not going to tell uh, your partner or your brother or your father or your children this secret that's you know eating away at you, but you tell somebody else in a therapeutic context, let's say, does what's the benefit of that? Are, are those kinds of confidants good for you? Yes. And the reason for that is, you know, if, if you're keeping a secret from someone and then you reveal your secret to that person, I call that confession. If you reveal it to a third party, whether it's a friend, a therapist, a bartender, whoever it is, I would call that confiding, um, sort of confiding the secret in someone while still keeping it from the person you're keeping it from or the people you're keeping it from. And confiding secrets, you really get the best of both worlds. Um, for the time being, the secret is still secret from the person you're keeping it from. You avoid the risks of confession. And at the same time, you can get help with the secret while yet yeah, while avoiding any potential damage that could come from revealing the secret to the people you're keeping it from. Uh, other people who are not you just have another way of thinking about it and will have a fresh perspective and they can give you things that you really can't find on your own, like emotional support. Uh, the average experience of confiding a secret in someone turns out to be very helpful. You know, there are, in some instances, I think, secrets which, instead of eating away at us or making us think that hills look steeper or distances look longer or burdens look heavier, give us a certain amount of joy, you know? I mean, if you even think about the Beatles song, I've got a secret, you know, we've got a secret, me and you, nobody knows, just we too. There's something joyous about that. There's something about me that you don't know. I'm having a certain kind of fun that nobody knows about. I mean, it's not necessarily priced into the idea of a secret that it's going to be an acid in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is the, it is a small, a pretty small slice of the pie of, of all our secrets, but there is this type of secret that's totally different and it can be fun and exciting and, and can fill you with joy. You know, maybe you're proposing marriage to your partner tomorrow. 
um, maybe you've been trying to get pregnant and and you are pregnant. Um, and these things that we sometimes take control over the revelation of perhaps the same way as a more prototypically negative secret, but it feels so different. Um, we feel in control, we feel this sense of autonomy, and we have this plan and we're we're following it through and it feels good. And maybe the revelations could be very exciting and we get to sort of look forward to that while it's secret. Um, and so, yeah, what we call positive secrets turn out to be energizing rather than burdensome. Right. I mean, a positive secret can be energizing at first and then not so much. I mean, the world <laughs> is full of people who are who started out thinking everybody thinks I'm this boring housewife or this man in a gray flannel suit, but I'm actually having an affair with a stripper named Xanadu. I'm, I'm having this exciting secret life. Uh, and that can be very intoxicating uh, and adrenaline producing at first. But then you start to realize, well, Xanadu maybe isn't going away all by yourself. Um, so so there, there's that, too. I mean, yeah. one should maybe as we start to run out of time here a little bit, um, maybe just talk at the end about the the value of sharing. I mean, ultimately, you know, your parents apparently said to one another, you know, he's doing all this interesting research on secrets. Maybe we should give him a call. <laughs> um, but I mean, everybody faces that at some point. Do I tell or do I not tell? Uh, talk a little bit about how to make that decision. Right. So if especially if we're talking about whether to confess to someone, do I tell or do I not tell? That's exactly the time to talk to, to someone else. Um, and some and here are the people who who are especially good at uh, being confidants, um, people who are compassionate, people who will be nonjudgmental, caring, empathic. Um, those are really helpful people to confide in. But also so are people who are assertive, someone who's going to push you to do the thing that you need to do. Another thing to look for when you're choosing who to confide in is essentially being sure that they have a similar set of morals as you. Um, it turns out it, it's it's I would call I would say rare. Um, you know, according to our studies, our best estimate is about 26% of secrets you tell someone you confide in someone they'll tell a third party about. They'll pass it on to someone else. Um, I don't know if that sounds frightening or. or uh, or sort of relaxing, but uh, but that's more likely to happen if the person believes what you told them to be to be highly morally objectionable. So don't choose someone who's going to be scandalized by by what you're telling them, um, because they might feel like a wrongful behavior needs to be punished. And, and one way to punish that is, is by passing your secret on. Um, so don't choose someone who's going to be scandalized by what you're telling them. And then finally, Think a little bit about whether you're going to entangle them into the problem. Um, you know, if you know about someone who's cheating on someone else, or you know, do, don't confide that in someone. For example, if you're cheating, you know, maybe be careful about who you tell. Um, don't tell someone who's now going to have to conceal it from your partner or conceal it from someone else's partner. Um, someone who's going to now have to be implicated in the secret. But generally, confiding goes well because we choose our confidants carefully. Um, we kind of know who can help and who can stay discreet. And it's just a matter of finding that person or, or figuring out who it is. And it could be anyone. It could be someone totally removed from it all uh, or just someone you trust. All right. We've got to take a break here. I was going to tell Mike Pence about my second family. I'm not going to do that now that you said that. Uh, meanwhile, Dr. Michael Slepian, great to have you back after 10 years. Let's make it five years. Come back for a teeth cleaning. Uh, continue mm -hmm. to floss. Associate professor at Columbia Business School wrote the book, The Secret Life of Secrets. We'll be back with more. Don't please my folks too much. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. My dear, my dear, call me insane. Choose a place, choose a life. The program insists I survive. That's right. Choose a name, choose a place, choose a life for the sake of the program. That program in this case would be the Witness Protection Program, sometimes known as WITSEC. Uh, joining us now is Renetta Lawson Mack, Professor of Law Emeritus Emerita at Creighton University School of Law. Uh, Renetta Lawson Mack did a study of the Witness Protection Program, its history, and some of the challenges it has faced. It is obviously one of the biggest secrets you can keep uh, is that you are not who you say you are, uh, and if people knew who you really were, they would kill you. Uh, so, so first of all, welcome to our conversation, uh, Renetta. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here and to talk about uh, a topic that I sort of studied over uh, over 30 years, although not continuously, but uh, checking in on the program occasionally. So this program starts out, out in the late 60s, early 70s. It's It started because of exactly that, that uh, people in certain criminal environments, if they if they become witnesses, their lives are a forfeit. Um, so you got to hide them somewhere. Um, my sense is from your research, initially, they hadn't really thought through a lot of the details of this. I mean, you're going to have to hide maybe a, a man plus his wife plus his kids he, he and his wife might get divorced, uh, right? There's a lot of moving pieces to witness protection and that secret. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, the, the witness protection program was sort of an add-on to um, a bill that was introduced in the 19, or 1970, late 60s, 1970. Um, and that bill overall was designed to um, eradicate organized crime. And one of the big pieces of the bill was the RICO statute. So that's what the bill is really known for. But uh, at the time uh, when uh, Congress was deciding, well, what's the best way to do this? We can have the RICO bill where we force people to forfeit their assets. But we also need a way to get at uh, the, the top leaders of organized crime. And one way to do that is to get witnesses. And we have to incentivize people to become witnesses. And, uh, and they obviously realize that once people testify that their lives could be in danger. Uh, but no one thought about it. No one thought through what, what does it mean to protect someone? What does it mean to take someone and give them a new identity? What does it mean for the government to lie about someone's identity, perhaps over the course of that person's uh, entire life? And so the whole idea was we have this program but, but what do we do about it? How do we implement it? And uh, no one planned that out initially, and no one anticipated the consequences either. 
We're a little squeezed for time. We were going to play a clip from Goodfellas, which, of course, is based on a real person and a real witness protection uh, um, participant. But, I mean, I think the point of Goodfellas is a really interesting one, which is that people are living colorful lives, exciting lives, stimulating lives where they've got access to money and intoxicants. And that's why they became criminal associates in the first place. Right. And that's all their friends are there, too. And, right. and so this whole program is, says we're going to take you. All, all, all that away from you, you take you away from all that, put you someplace that's probably a little bit more boring in a life that's a lot less stimulating with people that you don't know and you can never talk about what you did before. And, and how realistic was it to think that people would always be able to do that and keep it secret? Well, the, the whole idea was that people would acclimate themselves because they would uh, sort of do the cost-benefit analysis. Uh, the government is giving me a chance to start over and not get killed, right? So the, the cost-benefit analysis, I have this new life in, in a boring place, but the other uh, part of it is that if, if I reveal who I am, if I mess up in this program, then I'm going to be killed. And so the government was counting on people doing that cost-benefit analysis, but uh, it didn't necessarily work out. And as you mentioned, uh, the, uh, Henry Hill, uh, who was uh, part of the Goodfellas, he actually opened a restaurant out in uh, Connecticut at one point. Um, and uh, it burned to the ground shortly thereafter, uh, perhaps under criminal circumstances. But nonetheless, uh, people uh, did go back to their criminal activities. Right. Or reach out to Confederates. Uh, you uh, mentioned a, a, the case of a woman named Brenda Paz uh, who had been uh, in MS-13, and she just reached out because what? She was isolated and lonely. This was not a good idea. That's exactly right. The, the psychological uh, problems that arose from you know, having to isolate yourself from family and friends. And in, in her case, uh, and in many cases when people are involved in gang activity and even organized crime activity, uh, that becomes their family. And so to cut them off from that, and in Brenda's case, to cut her off from that meant really to cut off most of her life. And so uh, she could not resist, and the consequences for her, unfortunately, were deadly uh, when she reached out to people uh, in that uh, in that gang. Okay, and and I mean, in some instances, it works out differently. Uh, there's a, a guy named Herbert Itkin who uh, was a witness entered entered the program, as they call it, uh, because he testified against a guy named Anthony Tony Ducks Corallo. And then years and years later, he runs into Tony Ducks on the street, <laughs> and what does Tony <laughs> Ducks say to him? Tony Duck said, you really did a number on us. Um, and then they just walked on. And so uh, and, and so that sort of fits uh, one of the narratives that came up at the time the program was initiated. Is what is the real threat to people? Um, and, and are we overestimating that threat? Uh, more recently, there was the, the possibility of uh, the rapper uh, Takashi 69 uh, he, he testified against some gang members and there was they were floating the idea of the witness protection program. Uh, he has tattoos all over his face. And so they were sort of speculating, what, what can we do to get him into the witness protection program? Ultimately, he said, I don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, and he just got his own uh, private security uh, team that's going to be around him 24 hours a day. And and so far, he seems to be well. This was 2019 when he testified and he still seems to be doing fine, even though he gave lots of testimony against gang members. 
So, Renetta, I'm on kind of a tight clock here, and I would like to talk to you so much more about this. But I think one point that you make that's really interesting is sometimes the government winds up keeping a secret from itself. You get a terrorist out of an organization, uh, that terrorist becomes a cooperating witness, uh, but the person's name gets changed and is no longer tracked. If that person should go back to the life of terrorism, that person has kind of gone off the necessary surveillance radar. That's right. Um, and that was a sort of a new twist to the witness protection program. Uh, again, infiltrating terrorist organizations was, is a little bit different from organized crime because uh, for terrorists, generally speaking, they are wedded to the ideology rather than the terrorist organization. And so taking them out of that environment doesn't necessarily take away their commitment to the ideology. And so if you lose track of them, uh, it's possible that they could uh, reoffend because They've left the organization, but not necessarily left the ideology. So uh, so the government could be creating uh, other terrorist groups by uh, hiding and protecting people uh, from one terrorist organization. Right. Just because one arm of the government or one you know agency of the government knows where, who and where this new identity is, it doesn't mean everybody who might need to know knows. We do have to stop there. Renetta Lawson-Mack, this is fascinating stuff. Professor of Law Emerita uh, at Creighton University School of Law, uh, done an extensive study of WITSEC. All right. We'll take another break. We'll come back. We'll talk about how conspiracy theories can work if people can't keep a secret. Support for Connecticut Public Radio comes from Middlesex Health, Connecticut's connection to second opinions from specialists at Mayo Clinic at no cost to you. So today's show, I have to say a few thank yous. Um, Kat Pastor is our technical producer, pretty much as usual. The uh, episode today was produced by McCusker, formerly known as Carolyn McCusker, but we rebranded her. I'm sure that Jonathan McPants has contributed in some way as well. I'm just not sure how. Uh, Yes. And so... If you listen to this show a lot, you know that this next topic comes up with some frequency. Uh, it, it, it's how can there be conspiracies that require uh, the, the secrecy uh, and the confidence keeping of large numbers of people? And I think, Kat, if we could just play C1 here, nothing demonstrates this phenomenon as well as this. No sooner had we defeated Germany than a new threat started appearing in skies over America drawn to Earth by the latest threat to extinction, the H-bomb. Explosions acting as transducers, drawing alien life forms through wormholes in spaceships using electrogravitic propulsion. Advanced extraterrestrial species visiting us, concerned for mankind and the threat of our self-destruction, forestalling our annihilation through their own self-sacrifice in crashes at Roswell, more importantly, places like Aztec. World leaders signed secret memos directing scientific studies of alien technology and biochemistry. Classified studies were done at military installations S-4, Groom Lake, Wright-Patterson, and Dulce. Extracting alien tissue, tests were done on unsuspecting human subjects, and elaborately staged abductions in craft using alien technology recovered from the down saucers. Do you get all that? <laughs> all right. So that, of course, is from the X-Files. But, you know, we deal with this all the time. And, in fact, I mean, the X-Files is putatively fiction, but uh, we're back in the thick of another conversation about recovered um, uh, UAPs and dead alien bodies and stuff like that. The, the, the question is, 
How could such a secret be kept? Uh, And somebody who's thought a lot about that is Dr. David Robert Grimes, a scientist and science writer. He's joining us now. So um, this all kind of started when you were getting a bunch of, I think, DMs uh, about about conspiracy theories. Tell us a little bit about the the launching pad for this quest of yours. Yeah, it it was very inadvertent. It definitely wasn't part of my plan. So for years, I was writing about topics that are scientifically non-contentious, but in the public mind can be. Things like climate change or water fluoridation or, God forbid, vaccination, as we've recently all seen, can wind people up the wrong way. And every time I write about these topics, I get emails not only alleging there was a giant conspiracy, but somehow alleging that I was competent enough to be part of it. And this made me very curious because occasionally you do talks and you'd meet people that would say the exact same thing um, with all conviction. And I decided to take a very devil's advocate approach to it and say, well, let's imagine there was a giant conspiracy. How likely is it that we could sustain that and how much effort would it require? And I guess that's what was my launching pad for looking at this stuff. Right. And so and this is a very serious matter, because, in fact, if you can get people to believe that there is a conspiracy to conceal the evil, the bad side effects of a very important and useful vaccine or conceal the fact that that Bill Gates is putting microchips in your bloodstream or something, whatever it is. I mean, if if you can get people to believe that kind of thing, you can significantly impede uh, not only the, the, the march of science, but in fact, public health and the safety of other people. So, and we've seen that during the pandemic in, to a huge way. I mean, I, I never thought we'd envision an, an area where people wouldn't get vaccinated because they believed that a, the guy who invented Windows was putting microchips in them. It, 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 it can, it, it's funny in one level, and on another level it becomes much, as you point out, much less amusing when it translates into public health. Right. Well, I never thought I would see the day that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would be polling at 19% <laughs> uh, among putatively sane people. So... I think it's important, and this is the beginning of your research in a way, there are some conspiracy allegations that turn out to be true. They tend to be the less well-known ones. But for example, you know, uh, Edward Snowden in 2013 exposed, I think, what we could call a conspiracy, right? Absolutely. And, and that's a really important caveat. Conspiracies do happen. If you and I, Colin, decide we're going to rob a bank tomorrow, well, firstly, I don't know how we're going to do that because I'm on the other side of the Atlantic. But if we decide to do it, um, that's a conspiracy. Criminal conspiracies happen all the time, political conspiracies. Uh, But historically, they tend to be kind of closed affairs. Uh, Back in the 1500s, Machiavelli was warning the prince in his his dialogue against conspiracies because they're so likely to crumple. And Benjamin Franklin once said that three men could keep a secret if two of them are dead. So the problem with conspiracies is the more people you involve, the harder it is to keep the cat in the bag. And the problem with these massive-scale conspiracies that people do tend to believe in, say about climate change or vaccination, is that they a priori require hundreds of thousands of willing participants to be kind of nefarious. And that's when you start running into a problem. It's not that conspiracies don't happen. You look at the Snowden example that you used there, the prison project. That was exposed, and it involved about 32,000 people at maximum. It was exposed after six years because Snowden... um, felt it was unethical and uh, blew the whistle on it. And in doing so, he also showed the documents that proved no one denied that prison was happening. That was one thing that I think is really important. No one said, oh, he's making it up. Once he had the receipts, so to speak, it was very clear. Um, That's how quickly these things can be exposed. 
Right. And let's take another one that's that's a real thing, and that would be the, the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Um, this is something that was hidden from a lot of people, especially the people who were the unwitting subjects of the experiments. So say a little bit about that one and, and what level of secrecy and collaboration was required to make that a secret. That one's a really interesting one. And when I was, I was doing the original paper on this, it kind of threw me whether I should use it as an example or not, because it started off as something quite hidden. But within 10 years or so of it starting, this was basically people would, um, would come in who had syphilis, usually uh, black men, and they were intentionally not informed or treated by the doctors. And originally it was before they had treatment, but even after we had treatments, they were deliberately not told about it. Uh, and this went on until the 1970s, from the 1930s to the 1970s. And people were publishing in medical journals. So while it was, in some respects, uh, intentionally secretive, it wasn't even that well controlled, given they were publishing about it. So it kind of blurs that boundary between, was that a conspiracy or is that just something incredibly unethical that people did not blow the whistle on quick enough? So when these things get bigger, um, you know, we are having a conversation here in this country about, for example, uh, dead extraterrestrials um, and just other things related to identified aerial phenomena uh, or I guess they're anomalous phenomena now. But the numbers can get very big. But let's give let's let's go back a little bit in time. The idea that the moon landings were a hoax. There's a significant number of people in their at least there was, I think, a significant... No, signif- yeah, go it ahead. Still is. still is. All right. So talk about sort of what it takes. You developed a formula, basically, to try to figure out number of conspirators and length of time they would have to keep the secret. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. And, and, and again, I come at this from a very um, public understanding angle. I mean, in the 2016 paper, I originally did this in, and also in, in my book, Good Thinking, I'm always trying to say, look, we'll play devil's advocate. We won't mock people for having strange beliefs. We all have strange beliefs. So the idea is a moon landing hoax. If we started that as our initial position, we can go, okay, how many people would that involve? And the amount of contractors and staff in NASA at the time for the Apollo project is roughly around the 400,000 mark or so. Now, then you go, if every person who's involved in that conspiracy, and these are people who have to be fully complicit, they'd have to know that this was a deliberate attempt to deceive. Let's assume each one of them have some tiny but finite chance of letting the cat out of the bag. They send the message to the wrong person, or they get a conscience and they, and they blow the whistle. Um, and even though that chance is very small, we'll presume they're better secret keepers than the NSA, right? We'll use Snowden as a benchmark here. Um, we can then extrapolate that using very well-known probabilistic mathematics, and we can get a rough estimate of how quickly will that persist until it fails. And the answer is, even with the best assumptions for the conspirators, even when everything goes in their favor, those kind of conspiracies would be doomed to a very young death. Because unfortunately, when you are trying to keep secrets with hundreds of thousands of people, it's just very difficult to do. And, and that's essentially what the math spat out when you put it through, which I don't think is that surprising in some respects. So, and you actually have kind of worked out the kind of l- the likelihood uh, of collapse within a certain amount of time, right? I mean, you've developed yeah. a way of kind of estimating how long the moon landing hoax uh, could be kept secret if it actually were a secret. Under best case scenario, you're looking at about three to four years for most of these massive conspiracies. Mm. And that, again, is already unrealistic because we're already assuming that everyone involved is really determined to keep this a secret and has no ethical problems with it and is a better 
secret agent, so to speak, than the top intelligence agencies in the U.S. And even under all those assumptions, which are already unlikely, the devil's advocate argument kind of falls apart. So the reason I came up with that was solely to, firstly, to check my own assumptions, <laughs> but also to say, look, here's an educational tool that we can show, even if we assume all this is true, these giant conspiracies are just very, very mathematically unlikely to endure, even under the optimum case for them to do so. Right. So uh, if if 411,000 411, uh, people have to keep the moon landing uh, secret, um, even if you get Benjamin Franklin to kill two of them for you, it would still be 410,998 people would have to be keeping that secret. Uh, it seems unlikely, just an unwieldy amount. So there's this movie you may have heard about called Oppenheimer, and it talks about how the uh, the atomic bomb was developed under conditions of secrecy. And one of the tools they use is compartmentalization, the idea being that uh, that if everybody knows a little piece, if, the, if there isn't any, if there aren't many people who know the whole story. People know little parts of the story. Absolutely. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's a way of keeping a secret. I should say that, just having studied that particular thing in college, the scientists complained all the time about this, and they said, this is not how you do science. You cannot do science if you are limiting our access to some of the pertinent information. But talk a little bit about that correct. idea. Yeah. So that, this is the idea of what's called compartmentalization. It's a very common idea in the intelligence services. The idea is if everyone only knows a little bit about what they're doing, no one has the full picture bar some people at the top. And the whole idea is, again, that intuitively intelligence agencies know what I kind of mathematically worked out, that it's very hard to keep secrets of big groups. So in the Manhattan Project, different groups knew aspects of what they were doing, but not the full details. Uh, and and I, I think that was a frustration to the scientists. Indeed, because this is not how science is done, you kind of have to be very open. This is incidentally why a climate change conspiracy hoax spanning the world would be virtually impossible, because you'd need everyone to be fully complicit. You couldn't compartmentalize it. That's why I focused on scientific conspiracies rather than the giant umbrella of conspiracies that involves politics. Um, and even with the Manhattan Project, which was remarkably effective over its life t- lifetime, they still had the problem of spies which, of course, made things like uh, Klaus Fuchs, for example, was involved in that, and there was other spies as well. So even these projects, um, with their compartmentalization, are very difficult to maintain. But if you do want to keep a secret, the lesson here the intelligence agencies all know is the smallest amount of people that need to know need to know, and everyone else only knows a small portion. Right. And, you know, you just brought up an important thing about the Klaus Fuchs, too, which is another thing that you have to kind of think about a little bit is, yes, they say there's, uh, in the case of climate change, 405,000 people who need to keep the secret. And, of course, this is all based on the fact that the heavily funded solar, wind power and electric car industry has has sat on this uh, information that climate change is a hoax and the drastically underfunded and small, uh, unable to mount a defense fossil fuel industry uh, has been unable to overturn and expose this hoax. Uh, but I mean, all joking... mom and pop out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All joking aside, you'd have a lot of people with a lot of incentive to... I mean, and, and some of the other things you've looked at, yes, unsafe vaccines are being covered up. Cure for cancer is being suppressed by big pharma. In all of these instances, it's not just how many people keep the secret, but how many people who are not spies, but just interested parties of one sort or another, would have a tremendous incentive to expose the hoax, right? And that, in a way, starts the clock running faster. 
Absolutely. And you've got to remember that 37% of Americans believe the FDA is suppressing a hidden cure for cancer, despite the fact that over half of us will suffer cancer a lifetime. It's like they'd be acting against their own interest. Um, and a lot of the reason for this, again, you, you, you're absolutely correct in what you say, but if you take the fossil fuel industry, they have for years been complicit in disinformation campaigns uh, against say, uh, renewable energy or, or things like that. And while they wouldn't necessarily put out conspiracy theories, they do very little to discourage them. So if people want to believe that climate change is a hoax, um, I don't think you're going to see many fossil fuel companies object to that, even though, as you point out, these are not small industries. Uh, these are huge, multi-billion dollar companies. So sometimes the uh, fixation with conspiracy theories means that people miss out the very real ones that are happening in front of them, or the very real intense intentions to deceive. The example I always give of that is, for example, there was a massive panic over 5G. If I remember a few mm -hmm. years ago, there was protests, things like that. An awful lot of that uh, disinformation campaign was funded uh, from Russia. And I, there's a slight irony where people were, you know, being interviewed by the New York Times, insisting that there was a giant conspiracy from cell phone companies, not realizing that they were really being pawns in a more sinister game by... They were useful idiots to a different plot. So to me, there's at least a little bit of charming irony in that. So let me play devil's advocate, although I'm very on board with everything that you're saying, but just to play <laughs> devil's advocate, I could say, well, you know, in a lot of these instances, there there is leakage <laughs> of a sort. In other words, one of the reasons we've been having a decades-long conversation about UFOs and crashes at Roswell and things and Project Blue Book, and this goes back decades and decades and decades, you could find somebody at the at the end of a bar or, uh, or, or pub <laughs> or a coffee <laughs> shop or wherever who would tell you all about this. They know absolutely everything about this, and that's been the case for a long time. So I think somebody who was a, a full-blown UFO conspiracist or Kennedy assassination conspiracists would say, what secret? Of course there's been leakage. That's why I know about it right now. What's your response to that? Well, I think the Snowden example is a very strong one, a rebuttal against that. When when Edward Snowden came out and said, right, this is a project going on, he came out with all the documents. Whistleblowers tend to do that. I mean, the Pentagon Papers is another classic example. So if you really can prove it and you're not just you talking not a lot of guff, it's, it's very hard for people to remove that. Uh, the fact that people can't, there's always people who will talk a big game and will exaggerate or make things up. <laughs> oh, no. I think the NSA has jammed our transmissions. It's a conspiracy. We have lost our guest. Uh, <laughs> this could be like the perfect paranoid note to end the show on. We've been talking to, talking to David Robert Grimes, who is a scientist and science writer, on the assumption that he's not coming back. Let me say goodbye. <laughs> Thanks to everybody who helped out today. And we will be back with you tomorrow and the next day and many days after that.